Welcome to Ludwig Lopate at Large. I'm Ludwig Lopate. Astronomy is not only one of the oldest sciences, it's also one of the most accessible. The body of knowledge we now have began with ancient people looking up and wondering why. On any clear night, stars are visible to the naked eye, and if you're out of the city, away from the glare of light pollution, you can see thousands of stars. During this year of isolation and confinement, communing with nature has been a constant shared source of comfort for many of us, as well as a challenge to our intellectual curiosity. Joining us now is science writer Giles Sparrow, author of A History of the Universe in 21 Stars and Three Imposters from Welbeck Publishing. It's a fun guide to a, a more enlightened evening stargazing and an entry into larger realms of astronomy and astrophysics. Welcome to our show. Hello, Leonard. Nice to, um, nice to meet you. You've written over 20 science books for children and adults, including the very popular Cosmos. Did you intend this rather slim book to be a follow-up to Cosmos, which weighs around eight pounds? <laughs> Not really. It's a different, it's a different, taking a different approach to things. I mean, I've, I've kind of, it's funny, when I graduated, I've, I've kind of built, built a bit of a my writing career has been sort of built or has gone hand in hand with the success of the Hubble Space Telescope. Mm. It went up when I was an undergraduate and, and it's just been making all these amazing discoveries ever since. And um, I've done these books like Cosmos, which are fantastic illustrated, you know, glossy tomes mm. um, that can, you know, look really good on your coffee table. But this, you know, I kind of wanted to do something that was a little bit more quirky and and maybe a bit more accessible to actually how people can go outside and see things in the night sky themselves. Although it is pretty detailed for the amateur, naked eye, skyward looking astronomer. Yeah. Um, <laughs> now, let's start with basics. What exactly is a star? Uh, a star is fundamentally a huge ball of lightweight gases. It's high, most, mostly made of hydrogen and helium which are the lightest gases in the universe and the most plentiful because they're the stuff that was made in the Big Bang. And they're just, they just collapsed under gravity to such an extent that the, uh, the temperature and pressure in the core in the central bit of the star can force hydrogen together and make new helium uh, nuclei, the central bits of the atoms. And that process, you know, uh, it takes um, four, four nuclei of hydrogen go together to make one nucleus of helium, which is the next element up, as it were. And um, but the, there's a slight difference in the mass that the, the, a nucleus of helium doesn't weigh quite as much as four nuclei of hydrogen. And that little extra bit of mass gets converted straight into energy in line with Einstein's famous E equals mc squared, and that that energy is what causes the star to shine. And so it's so the radiation gets you know blasts out from the core, holds up the structure of the star, and eventually it fights its way out over a few tens of thousands of years. Usually, it can take from to go from the core to the surface, and eventually it reaches a point where the star, the material becomes transparent, and that's what we see as the outer shell of a star, really. Now, didn't the 19th century French philosopher Auguste Comte say that 
we will never know anything about the chemical composition of stars. How soon after he died in 1857 did we begin to prove him wrong? It was we well we had the clues already. I mean, it was um, it was I was I think it was the 1860s or it was within, within a couple of years that um, Bunsen and Kirchhoff, Robert Bunsen, who you know invented most of us know him as the, the Bunsen burner thing that you would yeah the Bunsen burner that you'd muck around in the uh, uh, in the college chemistry lab with. Um, but he you know they were he and. Kirchhoff were experimenting with just what would happen if you burnt certain elements and in this, in this very hot flame. And they realised that the, the colours that were being given off, they looked at it through a device called a spectroscope, which splits the light up. So it makes a like a rainbow spectrum. So it's a bit like splitting sunlight through a prism. And they split the colours from these things and they thought, oh, as they wondered how you could analyse the colours. And they found that if you burn gases and things like that, they only give off very particular colours and very particular wavelengths and things. And that, these days we know that's to do with the atomic structure that's going on inside of these things. But Although you know, they probably well, couldn't some, have done it if the telescope hadn't been invented. Yes, yeah. Well, this is the thing that, um, you know, it, it explains... It explained a strange phenomena that had already been discovered well before Comte um, by a guy called Josef von Fraunhofer in the early 1800s, who had done basically the same trick, the Newton trick, with splitting sunlight through a prism. But he'd taken it to extremes and spread it out much, much more and found that there were all these dark lines over the um, in the rainbow-like spectrum of the sun and that this was basically connecting to the same lines that they were seeing in the laboratory, that you know elements were giving out light if you burn them in the laboratory, but in the atmosphere of a star like the sun, they absorb light uh, on you know, lights coming out of the sun, and as it meets these atoms, it absorbs them, and eventually, you know, another few years later. Uh, when photography came in and telescopes had improved, they were able for the first time to look and to do the same thing with the light of stars, which you can imagine is, even for the brightest stars, so much fainter than, uh, than sunlight or anything. And so they were able to split the light up from stars and see that, again, they had these same, these same black lines across them which are basically you know, chemical fingerprints. So yeah. all the evidence was already there by the time Comte had, had made that statement, really. But uh, Now, what did the ancients think the uh, stars were when they looked up? Uh, did they think they were holes in the universe? That was one, that was one idea. I know there were various, you know, various other, you know, various other things, but yeah, maybe, maybe the, because the, they thought that the, the Earth was static at the centre of the universe, and everything was spinning around it. And so the the fact that the stars track across the sky in the course of a you know a day and a night, and then come back to where they were, they thought that was because there was a a vast outer shell that all of the stars were on. And so, yes, either they either thought that there were there were individual points of light um, on the surface of this, or some people thought these were holes of different sizes letting in light from, you know, the unknowable, you know, possibly heaven beyond. So uh, religion 
played a, a part in to, in some of the theories. Yes, I guess so. And I don't think it was ever that, um, I don't think that sort of thing, there's a very famous 19th century uh, mock medieval engraving, which I think was Camille Flammarion, who was a French popular science, one of the first popular science writers, and he did this thing of a medieval peasant sticking his head through the the um, outermost sphere of the heavens, like the, you know, the, the sort of music of the spheres thing, but it was a, you know, a satirical kind of take on that. But certainly the, you know, the church had a vested interest in the, you know, the, the Catholic church certainly had a vested interest in the idea that the earth was the center of the universe and everything was revolving around it. Really to stand up as, at least so far as I understand some, you know, a few fairly minor uh, comments in the Bible. Like I believe there's a bit about possibly um, Joshua or someone commanding the sun to stand still. Yes. And um, and because of that, there was all, you know, um, and because of that, they thought, oh, well, if, if they commanded it to stand still, then therefore that carried the entire baggage of the idea that the sun was must be moving as a physical object, whereas <laughs> to, to modernise, it doesn't seem like it's that big a leap to think, well, yes, to stand still in from our point of view. So you could kind of still justify that by saying, well, you know, that stopped the Earth's rotation, I guess, if you want to. Um, Everything would have gone flying, but yes. that's a whole other <laughs> matter. <laughs> you, you, you live in East London, so I'm assuming that the limitations of your naked eye sky watching at home are, are similar to residents of New York City. How yes. far, far from a city do we have to go to gain the kind of visibility that uh, uh, we're talking about naked eye visibility anyway, or mm. uh, or, or good visibility with a, a pair of binoculars, which you, you recommend uh, over a rudimentary telescope? Yes. Yeah. Well, you can, you know, I think if you can get, you know, 20, you know, I guess 20, 30 miles outside of a, mm. a really big city like London or New York, so, so upstate or whatever, and, you know, just look, you'll, you'll get, you'll get a fairly decent sky. Um, half, half of the key is just so that your eye gets, um, get used to it. So, you know, try and, try and observe where, wherever you're looking just try and get something in the in between you and the street lights if there are any mm -hmm. you, yeah and go to a park off. perhaps yes yeah and just try and get some try and stand so so there's a strategic tree in the way or um <laughs> or whatever but yeah i mean it's you know you can't there's there's some places you can go i mean i, I was in yellowstone a few years ago and remember going outside of the hut we were staying in and just being overwhelmed by the sheer number mm. of stars and <laughs> and said, yeah, hang on, I don't really know where to start with this. And so in some ways a little a little light pollution can can be quite helpful because if there's there's like, you know, probably about four thousand stars you can see with the naked eye if you've got really perfect conditions and and pretty good eyesight. And that's enough to really mm. overwhelm the the prominent constellations. And so I never I, I never tried you, counting. Mm. But but has has the number has the number of stars we see continue to grow as the technologies have improved, and is there still oh. room for improvement? Oh yes, I and mean, there's always you know I guess there's always room for, room for improvement. So I mean, we're, you know the really the bigger if you think about the you know how much we can see 
depends really on how much light is coming into our eye. And we're, we're reliant on light. I mean, this is the amazing thing I, I find about astronomy in general, that it's kind of a pure science because we have to rely... You know, it's, it, it takes a lot of lateral thinking and things because unlike a lot of other things, we can't really do laboratory experiments with stars. And mm-hmm. we, can't, we can't go to them and measure you know, anyth- anything really beyond our solar system. We can send space probes and so on. But, but when you're talking about stars and things that are at immense distances, so you really, the only thing you have is light that's coming to you from all of these, you know, all of these distant parts of the universe and happens to be zipping across the universe, coming into Earth's atmosphere and making a beeline you know, straight for your <laughs> eyeball. And so astronomy in some ways, it's just a matter of trying to find ways of extracting more and more information from what the universe is giving us in those, in that sort of sense. So, so the bigger a telescope is, you know, a, a telescope's job fundamentally, I mean, these days it's, we, you know, we use cameras and everything to absorb the light instead. But, but it's fundamentally, it's just a, a big light bucket that is expanding the diameter of your pupil to gather mm-hmm. up more and more, you know, more and more light. So, so, I mean, I guess something like Hubble in orbit has got like a 2.4 meter um, diameter, there we go, eight feet roughly um, diameter mirror. And if you compare that to the roughly quarter inch diameter of your pupil, so you can appreciate how much more light that can gather up and and focus. And then on Earth, we've got you know telescopes already in the ten meter class, so thirty feet, thirty foot, thirty foot mirrors. And there's one that's being built in Chile at the moment, the extremely large telescope. Um, I'm not responsible for the names. Astronomers <laughs> don't uh, don't tend to come up with incredibly imaginative names for these things. Um, but that one is going to have a 30 meter diameter mirror when it's completed, or slightly bigger well, than that. So 100 feet across. Well, talking about imaginative names, is it fair to call the Milky Way our home galaxy? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's, How um, many stars in it? Uh, it's it's one of those things um between 100 and 400 billion it's just like oh what's a couple of hundred billion between friends it's um, it's but yeah around 200 billion is is what i usually quote but it it really depends because so many of the stars are incredibly faint these red dwarf stars that are you know a hundred thousand times fainter than the sun and we can only really see them in our particular that's you know stellar neighborhood even now although uh, i assumed i assume that uh, some of our probes are have uh, found more as they've traveled through uh, our galaxy and uh, and far into well, deep then, space they're not really getting they're not really getting far enough to do so i know everything mm-hmm. you know we've had we've had a couple of couple of probes the voyagers from the 70s 80s and and new horizons um, which went past Pluto back in 2015, and they're kind of on their way out of the solar system. But but in terms of the in terms of the distance that's travelled, it's so so small in comparison to the distance to even the nearest star that they're not going to get that much closer to for it to make 
much difference to the brightness of things, even if um, where, even if they had decent telescopes on board, which most of them don't, to be honest. Where is our solar system situated within the Milky Way? Well, the Milky Way's although we, we look up into the night sky and see it as a band of stars across the sky, that's kind of a, an effect of where we are because it's, it's basically it's a giant flattened disk um, with a bulge, a bulge in the middle uh, where all the, you know, where stars are concentrated and there's this enormous black hole. And we're about 26,000 light years away from that across this disk. And we're kind of sitting in the middle of it and we're, and the entire solar system is kind of tilted over relative to the plane of the of the galaxy itself. So when we look in certain in in some directions, we kind of see we can see up or down out of the out of the plane of the Milky Way, and we're look, like looking just past local stars, and it's a very dark intergalactic space, and that's where you tend to see other galaxies and and the real depths of the universe. And then if you look in other directions uh, across the plane of the galaxy, then everything kind of piles up. You know, you get one star and then beyond it, there's another one and another one. And these enormous star clouds. And that's what makes this, this plane, which yeah. is densest in the, in the area around the uh, Sagittarius and Scorpius constellations. That tends to be, that's where the heart of the Milky Way is from our point of view on Earth. How is the, that massive black hole that anchors the Milky Way discovered? Um, it's very clever. I, the, the idea had come up in the, in the, in the 60s, really. They discovered um, astronomers. It's one of, the, one of the imposters in my book. As we have three imposters as well as the... And we'll get to that. And they're all... Yeah. <laughs> and... Um, and one of these things was was turned out to be the first quasar, which is this immensely a, a galaxy with an immensely violent core pumping out light, billions of light years from Earth. And you know the only model that they could come up with for this that explained quite where all this energy that this thing was pumping out came from was the idea that maybe there was an enormous black hole in the centre of it, pulling material in and generating radiation as it did so and so yeah so then they then they you know yeah they quite rightly they said well hang on what if all galaxies have this and quasars are just like a phase they go through in their youth and then they settle down and we get galaxies like the milky way yeah. and and then in the 90s i guess it was um a couple of teams of scientists used space telescopes to peer through all of these star clouds that are on the way to the Milky Way. Because you've got a lot of dust and gas in the in the way. But if you use infrared telescopes with the with the right wavelengths you can see there's some really bright stars and star clusters right in the center of the galaxy. And some of them are moving terrifically fast and fast enough that you can track it over a matter of years. And they finally, they kind of constrained it to this star. Again, another unimaginative name, but S2, it's called. Mm -hmm. And um, <laughs> and they found that it was zipping around the uh, heart of the Milky Way in relatively few years and just basically appeared to be orbiting around an object that was completely invisible otherwise. And it had to be, you know, they could work out the mass of the star 
and so therefore they could work out the mass of the thing that it was orbiting because yeah. they knew its speed and and so from all of that they they kind of came up with okay this thing has got the mass of about four million suns and is sitting in a volume of space that is not much bigger than the orbit of uranus i think so so therefore if you've got that much that much mass crammed into that little space on the cosmic scale uh then it really has to be a black hole my guest on London Lopate at Large here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org, is Giles Sparrow, whose latest book is A History of the Universe in 21 Stars and Three Imposters. It's published by Wellbeck. So let's talk about those 21 stars. Uh, why those, considering <laughs> the, the number of stars there are? How did you uh, settle on the 21 you've written about on the, in this book? Yeah. It's, and are uh, they all visible to the naked eye? Not quite all. We had to, you know, I had to, unfortunately, reluctantly, <laughs> reluctantly think, okay, there's a few that, there's a few that take binoculars and a, a couple that would take a, take a small telescope really to see, but you, but you can see where they are. Um, and we have some lovely maps in the book. My friend Laura drew for me, um, which, you know, which kind of helped you to find your way. So I guess the, the thing was, you know, the, the useful thing is that stars tend to fall into categories. And so although there's you know, about 200 billion in the Milky Way, as I was saying, they all tend to fall into certain groups and you can class things as red dwarfs or red giants mm. or, you know, and um, white dwarfs, things like that. Just reading off some names you'll have heard. Isn't our, sun, isn't our sun a dwarf? It is a dwarf in the technical, yeah. It's <laughs> astronomy. It's a bit awkward the terminology of dwarf. That um, mm. that really a a dwarf tends to be anything that behaves normally in you know sort of in terms of uh, stars when they they go through their life cycle and they spend the vast majority of their lives changing hydrogen into helium. Uh, in their cores, which is as I was describing earlier, and that sort of that dictates their size and how their how their mass relates to their size and their brightness and their color um, and the surface temperature, which is you know what what is um, what is responsible for their color, and so they kind of they through through that period they obey this relationship where basically fainter stars are also cooler and redder and brighter stars are also hotter and bluer and we're kind of halfway up because we're you know moderately bright star um well it's no we're moderately faint star i guess but funny enough we sit roughly in between like you on the scale of things the faint the very faintest stars are hundred thousand or so times fainter than the sun and the very brightest ones are a hundred thousand or so times brighter than the sun so we're we're kind of middling in that regard but uh yeah so anything that sits on there and obeys that relationship is technically a dwarf star yeah. even from what you from what you say massive. from what you say uh it's uh it's changing its composition constantly so the sun that we have would be quite different from the sun that uh, prehistoric people uh, 
we're looking up at and uh, even and of course different again from before uh, life began on earth is, is that true Do, should we assume that the sun's going to keep on changing to a point where uh, it will no longer sustain us eventually yeah but it's going to be it's it's gradually it's gradually brightening um, and my understanding is we've got they often say well, there's it's it it takes 10 billion years so it's it's a very very long time scale and this is one of the things with astronomy where you have to kind of play the you know play the odds and you look at you look at a vast collection of stars gather the data for as many as you can and then and then try and find patterns in that because you're very unlikely to see a star changing from one format to another even over centuries or thousands of years and occasional occasional things happen stellar explosions and so on but but in general they um the the changes are so slow that like the you know going back to prehistoric times is the blink of an eye really and even i guess i guess if you go back to the real beginnings of life on earth which were about four billion years ago when the first microbes were taking hold it seems now um then then the sun was somewhat cooler at that point, and then it's you know it's heating up gradually. But we've got about five billion years before it turns into a red giant, and we, which is the point where it runs out of hydrogen yeah. in the you know to burn. But we'll destroy about, Earth way before that ever happens. It's okay. yes, yeah, sadly. <laughs> um, but about yeah, maybe about a billion years or so, I think, before things get noticeably hotter to the point where Earth might be uninhabitable. Well, you've included three imposters. What would be a star imposter, and uh, why would they be mistaken for stars? Uh, just just through their appearance. I mean, these these quasars that um, the the one I mentioned that you know when they were discovered, you know, Initially, it was, it was a point of light. They discovered it because it it was giving off a strange radio signal, and uh, and they thought, well, that, that's odd. And so, so they were initially they were called radio stars because they thought they thought it was just a a point of light that was flickering and giving off radio waves. And it was only as telescopes improved and they took a closer look that they thought, hang on, there's an entire galaxy surrounding that. So it wasn't something that was. It wasn't something that was relatively nearby in the Milky Way. It was something that was uh, much further away um, and incredibly bright. And the other ones, I guess I've got Omega Centauri in there, which is a, a lovely, what we call a globular star cluster in the um, in the southern skies. It's, you have to go quite far south to see it, unfortunately, but there's quite a few other things like it. But this particular one, was mistaken for a star and was given that that Greek letter classification, which was how they how they would catalogue stars in those days. You know, you'd start with the brightest star in the constellation, and that would be Alpha, and then go Beta, Gamma, and then so Omega was like the last one before they ran out of Greek letters. But <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, and then then when they turned telescopes on it, and they found that oh no, hang on, it's it's not a star at all; it's a fuzzy strange fuzzy ball and um yeah and i guess that the third imposter is the andromeda galaxy which which is kind of you'll see it as a fuzzy star again quite 
easily. So it's a very good spot. You've got to get somewhere moderately dark, but it's it's visible with the naked eye. And then if you look through binoculars, you should see it's this lens of light and it's the nearest spiral galaxy to our own. Now, how about the naming of these things? Uh, the naming of stars, the naming of constellations. Uh, it must have been different for the different ancients. So the Greeks were looking at the stars, the Egyptians were looking at the stars, I guess. I'm sure people in Asia were, were they all yes. uh, giving them names and which ones have come down to us? Yeah, well, the, um, I've, I'm not an expert on the vast numbers of different names that were, were applied, but obviously people have been you know, doing stargazing for thousands of years. The majority of the names, well, the, um, <clears throat> the assistant that we use today, the, the majority of the names, funny enough, there's a few Greek ones but a lot of them are Arabic or Arabic translations of of the Greek because um, during the Dark Ages, the you know there were these there had been these classical catalogues, most famously a, a Egyptian astronomer called Ptolemy, who was uh -huh. kind of Greek Greek extract um, Greek Hellenized Egyptian, I guess you call him, and he did this catalog that was considered the the masterwork of the of the time and was like you know the the last word on things for quite a long time and then that was transferred during the dark ages to um islamic astronomers took on you know took on that took on that stuff and they translated it and then they they started kind of building on it and improving the catalogs and so a lot of the names that we have these days uh, are you know come from come from the Arabic. Um, I think like um, I'm just trying to think of any that um, I think like Betelgeuse and yeah. things like that and Aldebaran and things like that. You can you pick out that there's a kind of Arabic thing. There's an awful yeah. lot of uh, awful lot of star names that start with Al. But then, mm -hmm. um, in terms of actually classifying stars, then that was really just about on the cusp of um, of the invention of the telescope. That a few years before that, a guy called uh, Johannes Bayer did a star atlas, and really inspired to some extent by the discoveries that were being made as European explorers went south of the equator and and started seeing stars that they couldn't see from the northern hemisphere and he did this star atlas in which he introduced this idea of the greek letters so you would have greek letters applying to each constellation so alpha centauri you know um beta ursa majoris and all of these different names. now what about now what about the constellations do, do they look like their namesakes or are you familiar with h.a ray's book for children where he redraws the lines to make the constellations look more like their their namesakes. I'm not. I'm going to have to look that one up. <laughs> Sounds like a fun idea. I'd some, but they originally. Idea. So they. So have they changed uh, their their shapes? Uh, did they look more like their namesakes originally? I when they were named. Uh, mm, I don't think so. Not significantly. I know. Th I think most stars do drift very slightly. They rearrange themselves in the sky. Uh, over very very long periods, but again, not significantly enough to have mattered since 
since prehistoric times. But um, yeah, I mean, the, the majority of constellations, the, the list is comes from, you know, we today we have 88 of these things and 48 of those are from Ptolemy's list, right. which was like summarizing things that were known in the ancient world. And then another 40 were tacked on much later around the time of the invention of the telescope and going on into the 18th century when people started really cataloging the southern skies and um so i think there's there's a lot of variation and some of some of them really do look like yeah. what they you know what they are i mean if you go out if you go out tonight if you have a clear night and a moderately dark sky then you'll see like taurus the bull is over in the southwest um, and that really does look like a bull, and that's probably the very earliest constellation because they found in um, in one of the caves in France, I think Chauvet um, Cave, these amazing cave paintings that are 15,000 years old, and there's these charging bulls and other figures. And mm -hmm. on the back of one of the bulls, you can see someone's drawn in this little cluster of seven dots, and that's the Pleiades star cluster. Which is, you know, which we still think of as being on the shoulder of the bull, because um, it's still quite prominent there uh, today. So that's probably the very first thing we can think of as a star map, and that's fifteen thousand years old. And people have been seeing that as a bull pretty much continuously since then. But there's a lot. I have of to take a. I have to take a little break. Unfortunately, uh, you're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York ninety nine point five FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. Okay, well, before we get back to my conversation with Giles Sparrow, I need to talk to you about something very important. Like most public broadcasters across this country, WBAI has been hit hard by this pandemic. Uh, unlike Britain, where you pay a fee for the BBC, whether you listen to it or not, or watch the TV shows or not, we rely totally on the support of our listeners. And a lot of our longtime listeners have been forced for financial reasons to drop their support for the station, which is why we're asking anyone who is able to in this time of crisis to step up and make a contribution of any amount to help keep community radio and London located at large on the air and coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. And the way to do that is to call 516 620 3602 right now or, or go online to give to wbai.org uh, becoming a sustaining member what we call a bai buddy is a great way to support this station without having to lay out a lot of money at any one time and we have a special offer for anyone who becomes a bai buddy today in the name of leonard lopate at large if you call 516-620-3602 or go to give to wbai.org during today's program we would be happy to send you a copy of the book that we're discussing a history of the universe in 21 stars and three imposters you're going to love it it's by my guest Giles Sparrow. All you need to do is call right now, 516-620-3602, or go to your computer or smartphone and visit give2wbai.org and sign up at the monthly amount of $10, $15, $20, whatever you're comfortable with to be taken out of your credit card, your debit card, or whatever is easiest for you. And, and that's it. 
We will take care of the rest. You don't even need to mention the book to the call center operator or, or check any additional boxes online. My staff will take care of everything. BAI Buddies are a great way to support this program while providing WBAI with a steady source of support. But however you choose to contribute, the important thing is that you take that important step to keep the show in this legendary radio station, the only one on New York Radio that's completely listener-sponsored on the air and we because we remain totally independent uh, we don't take corporate underwriting or funding grants of any one kind so one last time the number to call 516-620-3602 or go to give to wbai.org online and please be sure to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at large and from all of us at this show and this station thanks uh, now we return to my guest uh, Mrs. Sparrow are you there I, yes, I'm here. Okay. <laughs> I don't think oh. I went anywhere. <laughs> okay. So I said you begin the book with Polaris. Uh, is that what we know is the, the North Star? Yes. Yes. Yeah. The I brightest the star in the sky? Star in, pardon? Is it the brightest star, star in the sky? No, no. It's quite, it's quite moderate. And, you know, like, it's not, it's, I'm not, not even sure it makes the top, top 100, but, um, but yeah, no, it's not one of the most spectacular, but it's it's still quite easy to spot because it's it's just so lazy. It's it's always it in the same area of the move. sky. It's always in the um, same area of the sky, but other stars seem to to move. Why is Polaris stationary? Yeah, well, it's um if you if you stand outside for like you know, it doesn't doesn't take all that long before you realize that the stars are spinning over your head apart from this one and that's basically just because it's it sits right over the top of earth's north pole and yeah. so if you drew a line through the middle of the earth and out through the north pole it would point eventually you would come to polaris or you know or quite nearby there's there's a little bit of a gap but um but so as the earth rotates each day and you know we see all the stars kind of rise from the east, set, set in the west, except for this one. And like stars that are close to Polaris, they they kind of circle around it because they're because they're high enough off the uh, off the horizon that they don't really um, rise or set. But um, but yeah, it's it's quite easy to find because if you if you look for the um, the Big Dipper, which is pretty much the the star pattern that everyone knows, and you take the the two stars on the end of the dipper's pan, the right-hand side, as it were, then you, you just draw a line up from them and that points straight towards Polaris. And you said that Polaris is not alone. Does that mean that when we look at Polaris with the naked eye, we're actually seeing more than one star? Yes, yeah. It's a it's a double. It's quite a tight, tight double that I don't think you can distinguish um, all that. You know, you're not going to spot it but it's the the combined light of the two stars together and that goes for an awful lot of stars in the sky anyway that they turn out to be double when you look at them and a lot of them just can't be split at all and you have to come back to clues that you can get from the spectral these spectral lines and things like that that give away the fact there's two stars yeah, you're getting two stars for the price of one. <laughs> You've selected 61 Cygni as your second candidate, although you say it's a dull and easily overlooked star. Uh, mm. Why does it, well, first of all, why choose it? And why does it have a numerical designation? Are the 60 other Cygni? Uh, yeah, oh, and 
and more. I mean, this is this is the thing that that Greek letter system, as I said, it only gets you so far. There's only 24 letters in the in the Greek alphabets, and that was that was kind of enough for a while. But then, as telescopes improved and people got more meticulous, and um, <laughs> maybe slightly anal attentive about about trying to gather up all the all the stars that were in a constellation. So, um, so a guy called John Flamsteed, who was the British astronomer royal, uh, famously had a bit of a run-in with Isaac Newton. Uh, they weren't the best of friends, but um, but he had this idea. Well, of well, what if we, what if we just count all the stars that are, yeah, you know, that I can see through my telescope, starting from the west of the constellation and going towards the east, that haven't already been given a Greek letter. They're not bright enough to get a Greek letter, but we'll give them a number instead. So he counted up and going from west to east across the constellation. This one was number 61 of the um, of the set. But um, but I chose that when a, a lot of these things, you know, it's one of those ones. It's, it just had a, um, a very important role in history, as it turned out, because while they were trying to catalogue in the early days of telescopes, telescopic astronomy, they uh, obviously that increased the precision that you could work out the positions of things. And this was when they started to discover that some stars were moving very slowly and rearranging the patterns of the constellations, although that, that only really happens over thousands of years. But 61 Cygni was one of the very fastest moving stars in the sky in this sense. And, and that means it, it still takes a few centuries to drift across the width of a full moon but um and wasn't it realized... related wasn't it related to something that happened during the renaissance when one of the objections to the idea of a sun-centric rather than an earth-centric universe uh was related to the direction of the stars in relation to the moon yes yeah and this is the thing that um it was one of the, yeah it was one of the first things that you know people kind of pushed back it was quite a good argument to push back against the idea <laughs> because people said well hang on if the earth is moving around the sun and it's taking you know is on either side of this vast orbit <clears throat> then how come the directions of the stars don't appear to change if you think if you think i mean we call it parallax and the, the classic demonstration is if you hold you you know hold up a finger at arm's length and kind of squinted it through one eye and then the other and it seems to move against mm. the background, uh, even though <clears throat> even though it hasn't really moved at all. And basically, they you know, so they said, "Well, hang on, all the stars should be moving if we are, you know, if we are shifting from one side of Earth's orbit to the other." And at the time, you know, astronomers basically had to say, "Well, okay, so that means the stars must be vastly further away than we than we thought." Because if, if you think about it, if you know, just putting the sun at the centre of the solar system doesn't really change the idea. You can still have that the stars can be a spherical shell around the outside of, you know, beyond the orbit of Saturn, I guess, which was the the furthest planet they knew about at the time. But that thing of you know, why isn't the position changing? Was it did poke a hole in the argument and made them realise that, hang on, well, the stars must be immensely far away and that was really i guess where the the idea of endless space instead of a quite confined 
universe started to come in. And so basically they kept on trying to look for this measurement. And because they knew that 61 Cygni was moving very fast across the sky and they called it the flying star, they then thought, well, hang on, this, this star might be, the reason it's moving so fast might be because it's quite close to Earth. And eventually it took a couple of centuries in, in the you know, eighteen you know, mid-1800s, uh, a guy called um, Bessel, finally managed to measure this tiny shift that happens in the position of the star as you move from one side of Earth's orbit to the other and back. It makes this tiny little wobble in the sky. And then once you've actually measured that angle, it's fairly straightforward maths uh, to work out, okay, this is the distance that Earth is travelling. And so this is the angle that the star is shifting. And therefore the star is this far away and it turns out to be about 10 light years away so that's um which means that those that star is about half as bright as the sun in terms of the actual light it's pumping out so again that was the first real indication that the stars were physically different in how much light they were emitting rather than just being different because they're all exactly like the sun but at different distances you tell some interesting stories that could inspire a book in itself. For example, how did Harvard in the 1870s produce a cadre of female researchers? Uh, why did Edward Charles Pickering put that team together? Yes, it's um, it's one of these amazing things. It's funny. There's an, there's an awful lot of uh, female astronomers have made very major contributions, and especially centered around that group that were working at working at Harvard. And um, basically, one of the pioneers of you know of photography in astronomy was a, a quite wealthy businessman called Henry Draper who died young but his widow gave an endowment to Harvard to basically take his, use his techniques and start to compile a photographic catalog of of the stars and the the spectra of their light and Pickering was in charge of this because he was the director of the observatory and unfortunately it's not the most he had to be had noble and slightly ignoble motives, and the, Save the one that money. Tended, hmm? saving yes, money. We, yeah, it was saving money because he really didn't have to pay you know pay women research assistants as much as you know as men would have to be. So he could really get more once he once he was satisfied that you know they were going to. Did men take credit job. for it? Hmm? Yes, did they men? did. Yeah, he he co you know he usually listed them as co-authors on a lot of his papers and uh, a lot of them made good, you know, made good scientific careers out of it because this was at a time when like Vassar College and Radcliffe College were producing women graduates, but they were finding it very hard to get a foothold in other universities to have any kind of academic career. So that was, you know, that was the other, that was the more noble part of his, of his um, motivation. <laughs> Unfortunately, all of those technical difficulties uh, ate up a lot of time. So there were, we're running out of time, but there were all sorts of things I wanted to talk about that you address. Sunspots, which were originally thought as a, a flaw, and uh, there was a religious debate over them. There was uh, mm. Richard Carrington's uh, work, uh, the Carrington event. Uh, I wanted to talk about coronal mass 
Uh, yes, uh, yeah. Well, that's something to still send shivers down your spine. The idea that if one of these things goes off and we're in the wrong phone line, even today, well, we're, we're even more vulnerable today than they were in the 1850s. In the 1850s, it was just the um, the telegraph studies sparking and um, and going haywire. But in these days, oh, well. you wonder if a major solar flare. And you end the book with a story of an exploding star. We can't get into that either. But uh, I think that uh, it would be worth my audience's while to pick up a copy of your book. It's called The History of the Universe in 21 Stars and Three Imposters. And uh, it's been a great pleasure talking with you today. Uh, likewise. Likewise, Leonard. I, I wish Sorry for the technical difficulties. Yes. Oh, well. Uh, that brings us to the end of today's show. Uh, our special thanks to uh, uh, Fran uh, Higgins, who who uh, prepared it. Uh, if you're new to our program and you like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Uh, you can... Uh, we're also available on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. And there are links to all of our past shows on our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. You can reach me by email at LeonardLopateAtWBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I do have to ask you to support WBAI. If you care about Leonard Lopate at Large and all the great programs on this community radio station, we need your help to keep it all alive. And as you see, uh, the there are technical problems sometimes because we really have to do a lot to improve the equipment, but we can't do it without your financial support. So please step up right now and make a contribution at whatever level you're comfortable giving by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 516-620-3602 right now to show your support. And as I mentioned at the half, if you become a sustaining member of BAI Buddy during today's show, uh, by making a monthly contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large, we would be delighted to send you a free copy of the book we've been discussing, A History of the Universe in 21 Stars and Three Imposters by my guest, Giles Snyder. It's our way of saying thanks for helping uh, to keep this whole thing going. But please be sure to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large. Uh, and we hope you'll join us again tomorrow when Columbia Law Professor of Real Estate Law, Michael Heller, and James Salzman, the Donald Bren Distinguished Professor of Environmental Law at UCA, UCLA School of Law, will discuss their new book, Mine, How the Hidden Rules of Ownership Control Our Lives. We'll see you then.